0: Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me today is the one and only Christopher Barracat. Chris is a scientist, he is a coach, he is a pro natural bodybuilder, and he's a good friend of mine. I have known him since shit, 2016, uh, if you are a uh, listener of the podcast, or if you have been a listener of the podcast for a long time, you have probably heard Chris on the podcast, because this has got to be his like fourth or fifth appearance, and the reason is because he's just... The dude is smart. The dude is so smart, but he's also in the trenches. He's always updating himself on the research, on his coaching practices, and on his own athletic career, which makes him extremely relatable and somebody that I like to seek out simply because he's on both sides of the spectrum. He is living in the science, in the lab, in the research, with the evidence based community, but he's also in the trenches with people lifting and dieting. And that makes his information much more valuable, in my opinion. And that's why I brought him on today, actually, is because I wanted to have a candid discussion with him, partially because he's my friend and I know that I can have this type of discussion with him, but also because so many people liked my discussion with Jackson Pios that was on the podcast recently. If you didn't listen to that podcast, go back and listen to that as well. The most recent one with him as he's been on a couple times too. Um, and these are two people that are very similar in the sense that they're bodybuilders, they are coaches, but they're also scientists. And I wanted to bring them on because... You know, as somebody who has been coaching for a long time, I mean, I've been in the space for over a decade now, and I, when I came up, there was no quote-unquote evidence-based community because there wasn't any research going on on this kind of stuff. They weren't funding it, um, and as my career progressed, more and more evidence and research came out. And I valued it so much to the point where everything was black and white. If research did not prove it, then it did not work and it wasn't valuable. Until things started changing for me when I saw more and more clients getting results from things that weren't, quote unquote, backed up by evidence-based research. And it wasn't because they were wrong or that they couldn't be explained. It was because the research wasn't really done because there's so much nuance that goes into research from the type of participant to the duration, to the study control, to the history of the client prior to the study, to the age, to, I mean, to everything, lifestyle stress, you name it. There's so many factors that go into it. And because of that, You need to understand the research and the science in order to make a justified determination of how much that research and science actually applies. Now, I always will lean back on the evidence. That's why we have a chief science officer on our staff. It's because we value the evidence, we value the research, and we want to be able to lean on it and use it to explain what is working and what's not working and find the best strategies for our clients. But I do think there's value in understanding both sides of being evidence-based. In fact, I think being evidence-based is just that. It's knowing and understanding the science while also knowing and understanding anecdotal experience with coaching and with being in the trenches of the gym and dieting. So that's what we're going to talk about today. What is wrong with being evidence-based? What's wrong with the evidence-based community? Where do they go wrong? Where does evidence and research go wrong? What does evidence say that may not be actually justified 100% of the time. So for some examples, we discuss fasted cardio. We discuss reverse dieting slow instead of aggressively to quote unquote restore hormonal balance, which isn't necessarily wrong, but it's not always right, just like fasted cardio, right? We also discuss high carb versus low carb or is it really just calories and protein that matters? We discuss going to failure in effort in RPE. We discuss a lot of these things because in the research it is very black and white. Don't go to failure. Don't reverse diet too slow. Don't do faster cardio, it's pointless. Low carb, high carb, low fat, high fat, doesn't matter, calories equal, that's it, right? There's all these things that we believe there's nuance to and there's caveats that our experience has allowed us to question the science and use the science as a way to predict and understand why the things we're using that might not be done or practiced or shown in research are still working. And it's still working usually because of scientific Methods and principles. So, we're going to dive into that today. It's a really good conversation. As you can tell by this intro, not only uh, do I like Chris a lot, he's a good friend of mine. I really respect his information and his uh, thought process, but also I am very passionate about this topic, right? Being truly evidence based. And I'm excited to have him on and have this discussion. And I'm going to keep having people on that want to have this discussion. So, once again, it's Christopher Bearcat. You can find him on Instagram at christopher.bearcat i will put that in the description of this podcast if you enjoyed this podcast make sure you do me a huge favor post it on your instagram story tag chris tag me let us know you liked it we want to thank you for listening we want to share it on our story as well and without any further ado let's get on to the episode with the one and only christopher bearcat all right brother welcome back again and again and again and again i'm um, excited to talk to you man it's always fun uh like i said before we got on uh i it was funny cause I was listening to a podcast. I'm trying to think of where it was. Like there's, there's certain people in the field that, um, I, I will like go to Spotify and actually like search their name. And then I'm just like, let's see if they've done any interviews, you know, and you're one of those people. So I'll look you up and I'm like, let me see Thanks, what he's man. been on. Yeah. Um, and it's always, it's funny. It, it's, I consider you a good friend. So it's actually, it's always funny when you're searching your friends and listen to them versus like somebody I've, I don't really know, but I, respect yeah. the industry, you know, but I was listening to a podcast, and uh, you were you were talking about, um, basically, we, the conversation was around evidence-based, and you kind of steered away from a, a thought process, and it's one of the first topics we'll get into, it's fasted cardio, but you kind of steered away from what evidence would say about fasted cardio being yeah. non-effective, and it piqued my interest because you had a very good way of looking at it that I don't think a lot of people do look at it you because you're a researcher and you understand this stuff you were able to really pick apart the way the research was conducted the p- participants use the timeline when this strategy was used for the type like so many things people don't think about when they just say oh there you go fast cardio doesn't yeah. work so it got yeah. me thinking of like man we got to do a podcast and this is why like I literally was on my morning walk listening to it and I just Texted you right away. I was like, "Bro, yeah, come back on." Um, I appreciate it, man. So before we get into the actual like topics that we had laid out, um, just to kind of put context to this, general thoughts on the evidence-based community, the good and the bad. And like, I mean, just for people listening, like from somebody who has been around. Um, since I would say before, cause I know when you and I both started really getting into this stuff, there wasn't a lot of research going on. So most yeah. evidence and strategies we were taking were from the field as in the trenches, yeah. of the gym. Um, but you, I mean, ever since I met you back in like 2016 or whatever it was like, you were like in it, man, and you were really getting into it and you were still going to school at the time. Um, you were one of the guys that, uh, I met at the physique summit and I learned a lot from you from then on. So, um, Thanks, bro. I think. You're the best person to kind of define this, but man, fill me in. Like, what what are your thoughts in general, good and bad, yeah, evidence based,
1: for sure? So, I think when we look at evidence based practices as a whole, um, what we've been seeing a lot in the coaching space and in the online space is that a lot of people are not considering the anecdote component and the personal preference component, right? So, when you look at evidence based practices. Generally, you're supposed to look at what the scientific literature says as one component, anecdotal experience as another component, and then the client's preferences. I think we've been so gung-ho and zoomed in on just the scientific literature component of evidence-based practices Mm -hmm. that when you do things based on personal preference and or anecdote, you kind of get labeled as doing something that's bro or not proven or maybe you're implementing something that the literature currently says is kind of null, like it doesn't make a difference. And then people are viewing you in this light of no longer being evidence-based because the literature doesn't support what you're doing, but that doesn't have to be the reason you're implementing it. It literally can be because of personal preference, lifestyle, context, um, Or just what you've actually experienced as an individual or as a coach with your clients over the years. Mm -hmm. So I think people have gotten, again, the pendulum always kind of shifts. I would never want the pendulum to shift so far to one side where, like, you're just implementing stuff based on anecdote and personal preferences and you're totally ignoring the scientific literature. But I feel like right now we're just, so zoomed in as like a a community or a niche that you're just looking at the literature and you're like you almost don't even care about context and personal preferences so that's where i think we're kind of going wrong overall as a community and um there's also just a lot of reasons why people shouldn't necessarily value the scientific literature maybe as much as they do um i remember when i was younger I was in that same exact space before I actually got involved in the research, before I was able to critically analyze the study, um, and before I was able to properly weigh out how valuable this piece of evidence actually is. Um, So, yeah, there's so much to talk about. I can kind of just ramble on, but let me know if there's like anything in particular you kind of want me to dive into.
0: Yeah, uh, there definitely is. I think, and, and you kind of made a good point, and I mean... I've told somebody, I, I had a conversation with somebody around the muscle and strength pyramids by Eric Helms and no shade thrown towards that because that was a game changer. And I mean, that was like a huge introduction for me originally when it was just a video in like 2012 yeah. or some shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they were like, you know, is, they were kind of asking me if that's the gospel. Like, do you just always follow that? And I was like, well, yeah. I think it paints a picture that calories are typically the most important thing. But what if meal timing allows somebody to adhere better to calories? Well, in that case, meal timing is more important than calories because it's the only way to adhere to the scientific literature mm. or what the scientific literature supports as the most important thing. So mm. I think to, to your point, there's a point in time where I think some everybody has to understand enough of the science. But if you don't have practical experience and application of coaching and training and dieting and things like that with yourself and with other people, sometimes it's hard to even use it, right? Because- yeah you don't know when to apply it and when not to, or when something works and you're like, okay, there's nothing to support this. Why does this work? You can actually usually dig deeper and find out why it's actually working. And it's, it's not some random bro tactics. A lot of times it sure. does link back or loop back to evidence, right? And literature, yeah, yeah, but you don't know how to do that unless you really dig into the evidence as well.
1: Sure. Yeah. Maybe there's like acute evidence or mechanistic data, that logically or theoretically kind of makes sense as to why this is working, but there's no chronic long-term data mm-hmm. to support that. So yeah, there's, there's so much nuance to it. Um, and like, like you said, I mean, those pyramids were absolute game changers and that hierarchy of importance does hold true for sure. Um, I think context is important. Like you kind of use that example. Well, if somebody's specific meal timing strategy allows them to adhere to their caloric needs, then. To them, that's kind of more important, whatever it may be. But some of those same people are like, yeah, calories are most important. Then why are we tracking macronutrients? Like, we both know that if we have a client eating 2,500 calories per day, but their macronutrient intakes are totally different, their body composition outcomes are going to be different. Their performance is going to be different. Their blood markers can be different. So there's just so much nuance to it. And then when people are just looking for like quick, Yes and no's or black and white answers. That's when it just gets so ugly. Because mm-hmm. the truth of the matter is, it's just this huge gray area. And then the context and the nuance like needs to be understood so it can be applied appropriately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, um, I, I'll, I'll quickly touch on some just general issues in exercise science. Um, a lot of our studies are extremely underpowered. Okay. Um, I hate when I see people say, why don't the researchers carry out this study and do X, Y, Z design? And some people have like decent study designs in their mind, but they also have no experience in regards to actually creating it. And then more importantly, it's like, okay, that's, that's a great thought that you have, but like for that to be done, you realistically need like 90 plus people to participate in that study. And like the likelihood of that happening is super, super, super slim. So Just the fact that our studies in exercise science are generally underpowered, that makes the data less powerful, clearly. Like um, if you have one high responder or one low responder in one group, that could significantly throw off the mean, and then that can impact whether or not these results are support are reporting significant statistical significance or or not and it could just be due to one outlier in one way or the other and then the individual responses in literally almost every single study are so all over the place that it's kind of silly when we're just honing in on the averages because that's what we're generally reporting we're doing much better at reporting the individual differences by having different uh, figures and graphics within the studies that kind of sh- that show each individual, but you're still reporting the means. So a lot of things can kind of get misunderstood. And then when you look at the timeline of a lot of these studies, we're looking at individuals over one semester. So, you know, a semester is usually 14 weeks long. It takes about two weeks to recruit. We usually carry out a study for maybe eight to 10 weeks of an intervention because you have week zero, which is your baseline testing and then the final week, which is the results, so to speak, right? So um, yeah, when you have like eight to 10 weeks to work with, it's like how much change are you possibly gonna see anyway, yeah. especially if you are studying people that are well-trained or highly trained. Um, and that's a whole other thing. Like people are applying findings within the exercise science literature when they're not within that demographic you know, like a lot of research is done in males between the ages of 18 and 22. And maybe you're a 35 year old or you're a coach coaching a 35 year old. And, you know, those people have been lifting for three to five years, but you've been lifting for 10 years. So you're applying findings in a different demographic than yourself. Yeah. So it's just, it's very, very muddy, man. And if you can't kind of, um, brush yourself up, after getting through the mud then it's just it's just super messy
0: yeah i think that uh i mean you made a lot of good points i think that uh i always look at it when you're watching like ufc and i've said this before on the podcast and somebody's like just punch him already yeah you're thinking like you have any idea what it's like to be in that ring because i don't and people have no idea what it takes to put on a study i mean you didn't even touch on the financial side of it you know let alone People are like, well, why don't they do it for, you know, six months or a year? It's like, okay, well, do you want to control people's life for that long? Because they're probably going to yeah. say no. Um, but I agree. I think that it's hard. There was there was one study that everybody was talking about with uh, uh, main, maintaining muscle tissue. And it was basically like one-eighth or one-ninth of your volume can maintain your muscle, right? And so I had a question, and we were doing a YouTube video, I think, and I brought this up. And I said, like, I still will recommend, at least, you know, about half of your volume for most people because – they, if you read the study, I don't remember if it was a 16 weeks, I think it was 16 weeks at max, but they basically took people who weren't trained and then they mm. gave them a program and were like trained for 16 weeks before we start to study so that you were a, a like experienced lifter. Yeah. And it's like, uh, okay, well how much muscle can you really build? Even if it was 16 weeks, it might've been less. And on top of that, like what's the program? Cause like, yeah. I didn't even consider myself an advanced lifter till five plus years after I started lifting, you know? So Um, and I think as an advanced lifter, you might even, I don't know if it would be less or more, but point being is I think that's where there's so many little nuances that it's like one subtle little line in the study that you can gloss over easily, but that changes my thought process on it completely, you know, for sure,
1: for sure. So like there's this component to it where there's so many confounding variables that typically aren't controlled for that are automatically, you know an issue or a limitation in regards to the study. So we don't know how each individual is sleeping. We don't know how much alcohol they're necessarily consuming. Um, We don't know necessarily what they're doing outside of the lab. You know, sometimes they're tracking nutrition, depending on the studies and they're self-reporting that. Um, Sometimes they're not. And we just have an exercise science study without the nutritional component. So there's always so many confounding variables, right? Um, And then going to what you mentioned about the training program, Sometimes a lot of these studies are either two days per week or three days per week. And a lot of that is just based on the actual practicality of carrying out of, carrying out a research study. Um, it's really difficult if you do have 30 to 45 subjects to get them in the lab five days a week. So you kind of create a split or a routine where maybe they're doing full body three times a week, or you just do a lower body training study and you have them come into the lab twice per week as an example. So that again, like you kind of lose a little bit of ecological validity because a lot of people may not be training full body three times per week. Maybe they're training, you know, upper, lower, off, push, pull legs, but they're trying to take the recommendations or the volume and the frequency distribution that was found from this study and apply it to themselves when they're taking a totally different approach so there's issues there and then some studies that are super cool um, utilize like a within subject design so maybe their left quad is performing something and their right quad is performing another thing that information is highly highly valuable because the genetics of The subject is the same. The nutritional status, the sleep, all of that is taken care of, but at the same time, that's not how we actually train in the real world. So it like gives us good insight, but it's still not what you or I are doing in the gym. So again, the science is fucking excellent. It's awesome. It points us in the right direction, but it's not the end all be all. There's other components to coaching. There's an art to coaching. There's an art to bodybuilding. You need to freaking enjoy your training. Um, I was just chatting with one of my buddies, Teddy, recently, and there's like this one component about competing in a sport that actually takes the enjoyment away from your training because you're so focused on progression that you kind of fall in love with like the logbook or your training program, but you don't necessarily love the actual training itself as much as if you had a little bit more freedom and a little bit more flexibility so it's important to kind of balance the two the the art and the science and then you know what you really enjoy and then what's super important for long-term progression yeah so Yeah, it's a a never-ending quest for like perfection, but perfection doesn't exist.
0: Well, and I think that's like, again, this isn't us shitting on scientific literature. It's, I think there's just has to be like being truly evidence-based to me is not being science-based and it's not being like experience-based. It's being both, you know? And and like, if you don't have that experience, it, it just, you interpret things from the research so much better if you have coaching experience and you have training experience. And even it's like, there's times where, I will throw in random drop sets, or we change an isolation exercise, even though we weren't supposed to in the program, stuff like that. And it's for exactly what you said. This might not be optimal, but we're having fun in the gym, and this is going to make us go harder, have more fun, keep us engaged. Um, And I think that is super, super valuable. And a lot of times, the black and white answers are promoted by people who just, they're like keyboard warriors, right? They're not really grinding in the gym. And it does kind of take out the fun. I talked about this with somebody who was like, man... I almost missed the days where there wasn't as much research cause like everything was like so exciting. It was like supplements and nutrient timing and, um, intra workout and like GDAs and like, you know, yeah. casein at night, like every little thing made such a bigger impact in my mind at the time. And now that there's research, it's like, oh, that's like a half a percent increase maybe, you know, sure. but it's, you need those things to have fun and be excited about the shit, you know? So, um, one of the topics that I did not put on here that I want to bring up first, because you kind of mentioned earlier, like when we're looking at studies, you know, people, we're looking at calories equated, but macros are different. That can have effects, so on and so forth. One of the things a lot of people hang their hat on is like, if calories and protein are equated, it doesn't matter, you know? And I think there's only like, I know of a couple studies and I, I want to say like I was introduced to them when I had Joe Klimzinski on the podcast and he was the one advocating for like actually, a, you know, like, there's some research to support higher carb approaches is, are better during fat loss phase, especially if we're considering the individual is a resistance training individual, somebody who's yeah. like actually lifting and interested in building muscle or maintaining muscle. Um, so just getting your thoughts there. Like I've had a lot of success personally and with clients actually following what would be considered a low fat diet. Now, if you actually look at the literature yeah. of what is like harmfully low fat, it's not, it's totally fine. Um, but what are your thoughts there? I think that uh, it can't, you know, to me, at least, I don't believe that if calories and protein are equated, low fat, low carb, high carb, like none of it matters. Like I find that very sure. hard to believe.
1: Sure. And again, if, if you look at the research, those are kind of the outcomes that we do see, but it's without the context taken into consideration you're looking at group means you're looking at average responses you're not looking at individuals you don't understand exactly what they're doing and there's just so much nuance that's missed right so in regards to you know high fat versus high fat low carb versus lower fat high carb approaches that's going to be very individual uh, or very individualized based on the person's needs so my personal thoughts are like Okay. If I have somebody on a super low carb diet and I expect their training performance to stay high while in a deficit, they're already in a uphill battle. Like the likelihood of them performing really well and recovering really well is probably going to be lower. And because of that, their ability to retain muscle or build muscle is going to be hindered. So if you just kind of want to like take out all the context yeah, like protein and and total calories and fiber content. Like if those are equated, you're going to get pretty similar results, but when you're actually in the trenches and you want to make the most progress day to day and have the best performance and the best recovery day to day, it, it just makes sense that different approaches are going to be advantageous depending on the client's needs, right? If you take somebody that's working a nine to five and, and sitting in a desk all day long, super low, neat, like really low physical activity. Maybe they don't need, you know, a ton of carbohydrate coming in if they're just doing a 45, 60 minute resistance training session per day. But if you have somebody that just has super high neat, maybe they're a a waiter, a waitress, a bartender, uh, a construction worker, whatever it is, like you better adjust their diet for their actual needs. So they feel great throughout the day, you know? Um, so yeah, that stuff definitely matters. It's just, has it been observed in the research yet? Um, I was at USF once with uh, Dr. Campbell and he had uh, Dr. Andy Gallup in there and he said something funny. He said, "Uh, bro science is only bro science until the research proves it correct or (laughs) something like that. So just like, it's just like a time game thing, right? Just like, maybe we just don't have actual research investigating that in a super specific manner with these confounding variables controlled for. Right. So yeah. um, You need to experiment with different approaches yourself and see what actually improves your performance, your recovery and your outcomes. Um, So don't be afraid to experiment with different approaches and and then kind of make a decision for yourself.
0: I like that, that quote from him. And it's, I always, I laugh too, because there's times where I see uh, really smart individuals who will say, and and rightfully so, like you said, the literature shows that, so I understand why they're like, nope, calories, protein equated. Yeah. And they're jacked, and they lift, and you go, oh, what do you do? Why well, follow a high-carb, low-fat diet. And you're like, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So the bro in you still is like, I'm going to put my eggs in this basket just in case. Sure. Um, but again, like like you said, if you lift a lot, you know that you feel better in general. And then my other question with the follow-up for that is is basically like, Outside of fat loss, if we're going towards a surplus, would you, you know, hang your hat even more so on the higher carb, low fat approach? Because I think that there is some studies that show, you know, with calorie overfeeding with high carbs, high fat, you store more fat when you overfeed with fat. Or yeah. Martin McDonald had a good analogy. He had like a cup and it was like, he had like sand in the bottom and that was protein. He had water in there and that was uh, carbohydrate. And then he put oil in there and that was fat, right? And obviously they separate. And he was like, "If you're overfeeding, even with carbs, and he started pouring water in it, the oil is what comes out because the water sinks and the oil rises." Mm. And he was like, "Even if you overfeed, you're still going to store fat as fat because it's easier for your body to store fat as fat." So like,
1: yeah.
0: And it was obviously, it, I think it's an exaggeration; it's taken a little far, sure. but it points a good picture of like, you know, even if we are control, if we're doing controlled overfeeding, which is what a surplus to build muscle is, probably should lean more towards carbs instead of just saying you know, all calories. I mean, back in the day, it was like, just put olive oil on everything you fucking eat, eat pizza, yeah, yeah. whole milk, you know, um, cause yeah. calories, you just need calories for sure.
1: Yeah. Generally speaking, um, I'm going to be increasing carbohydrate in a surplus, but I also increase my protein as my surplus continues mm. because you're getting more and more trace proteins from the additional carbs you're eating. So then you're actually eating less essential amino acids than you previously were. So you kind of can't just keep protein totally stagnant, whether you're in a surplus or a deficit or maintenance, like that macronutrient intake is changing based on your trace fat and carb intake. So again, that's like a, that's a different thing where if you're, if you're super bro and you're following a meal plan and you're eating six ounces of meat per meal, and you're not tracking total macros, your protein intake is staying the same because you're having six ounces of meat per meal. And then in your off season, maybe instead of doing one cup of rice, you do a cup and a half and then two cups. So your carbs are going up and your trace proteins going up with it, but your essential amino acid intake stay the same because you're on this bro meal plan, right? Where it's okay. Six ounces of meat, six ounces of meat. But on the other end of the spectrum, if you're eating 180 grams of protein per day in your deficit at 200 carbs per day, and now you're at 400 carbs per day and a surplus, but you're at 180 protein, your protein intake is actually lower. than it it previously was. And, And that's not ideal for performance or recovery and body composition. So yeah, uh, generally speaking, the increases will come from carbohydrate and protein, um, fats too, just so you can have a little bit more dietary flexibility and you can kind of fit things in. Um, so yeah, like there's so many ways to approach it, right? Like when I'm cutting my fats basically never go below 50. Um, so I just kind of get more and more aggressive with carbohydrates coming down as needed, period, periodizing that. Um, but in a, in a surplus, if I'm tracking meticulously, I'm also not really going to go like above hundred grams of fat per day either. You know what I'm saying? So there's kind of like limits on both ends of the spectrum, whereas for proteins and, and, and carbohydrates, I would keep pushing that if you're responding well and your metabolism is, responding well and your training volume continues to increase or whatever it may be um yeah it would come from carbon protein
0: love that yeah i do the same oh, that thing. was a super long answer no that's good i do the same thing with protein but i've never really talked about it um and mm-hmm. it, it did it started as just intuition from following meal plan back in the day because that's what i did you know and yeah, yeah, yeah. even now i i still do follow a meal plan 90 percent of the time because it's just easier for me uh sure. And so it's still kind of like when we increase, I'm, I'm literally like, okay, I'm increasing this many carbs, but I'm, I'm purposely increasing oats in this meal and yeah. adding some fruit in this meal or whatever it may be. And my protein goes up because of it, you know? So, um, sure. no, I like that a lot. So the next topic is fasted cardio. Cause I do want to make sure we kind of keep hitting on these things. And sure. the thing you said in the podcast that struck a chord with me was, um, so all the literature up to date that I'm aware of. And I believe that you were aware of at the time of the podcast was basically saying it makes no difference because the net caloric expenditure at the end of the day is about the same, whether you do fasted or fed cardio. Um, however you were speaking on like, there's no research on somebody who is four weeks out from stage or four weeks out from a photo shoot or is who, who is super lean. Um, and that could make a difference potentially when we're talking about like yeah. truly stubborn body fat. Right. And I think that, Yeah. Um, The only time, the only thing that people will admit fasted cardio being better for is more of like a habitual thing, which I do agree with as well. It's way easier for me to do my cardio fasted because it's like I wake up, I have coffee and get some work done, and then I go on a walk before I eat breakfast. It's better for my like appetite regulation. It's just better for my routine. I get some sunlight in the morning. Um, But you were speaking on like maybe there is more to it if we study the right individuals. Whether or not we get to do that, who knows. But what what is your thought process and reasoning behind that?
1: Yeah. So there's like two things I'd kind of want to cover on it. And before I do that, I want to give a quick shout out to Dr. Guillermo Escalante. Um, We wrote a cool like review paper together on fasted versus fed cardio for physique athletes. Um, So you guys can check that out if you want us in the strength and conditioning journal. Um, And he made a great point in that paper where he was, he said, all right, most of these studies are pretty short duration like shorter than a contest prep. So it can be like eight to 12 weeks long. A lot of the studies, um, whereas a contest prep could be 16 to 20 to 24 weeks. Um, and on top of that, all of these studies aren't either overweight or obese individuals. So it's totally different demographic. And on top of that, he also mentioned that even though there is no statistical significance between fasted and fed, a lot of these studies show a really small effect size kind of trending towards favoring fasted very slightly. Again, it's not statistically significant, but these really small, like there could be something there if there was more subjects, if the study was longer and or if it was in a different demographic. So I still don't think the case is 100% closed from an actual physiological standpoint, like an actual outcome standpoint. So the science again, isn't in, people who are listening to this podcast necessarily. Right. Um, So you need to take that with a grain of salt for sure. And then on the other side of the spectrum is exactly what you touched on for a lot of people's daily routines. It just makes sense to crank it out first thing in the morning. On top of that, we also know there can be some negatives to performing cardio after resistance training. It can kind of blunt the muscle protein synthetic response and that can potentially reduce your ability to build or retain muscle tissue. So it's like, if you're, if we know it's better to split it up into two sessions, because the same people who say fasted and fed doesn't matter based on the research, which they're technically correct about, there's no statistical difference. They'll also say the research says it's it's better to split up your cardio and not to do cardio post-workout. So it's like, okay, when, when are you gonna recommend these people do cardio, right? You're not gonna recommend them lift fasted, because their performance is probably going to take a hit, especially if they're in a chronic deficit. Um, I can lift fasted when I'm in my improvement season in a large surplus because my energy, my energy reserves are full, my glycogen's there, I have higher body fat levels, it doesn't really affect me as much. But you're not gonna, you're not gonna suggest somebody to lift fasted if they're in a deficit for a long period of time, right? right. So it's like if you know cardio is not ideal to do post workout, when are you gonna suggest them do it if you want them to split it up? Right. It kind of just makes sense to crank it out first thing in the morning. For some people, it kind of starts their day off in a positive mindset, can release some endorphins, get some dopamine flowing, they're feeling good. And they kind of start the day off with a small win. You know, they check a box and it's like an empowering thing. Um, So just again, that's where I don't even want to say anecdote necessarily yet, but that's where personal preference can really come into play when you're looking at the three foundational principles of evidence-based practice so yeah you got to take that into consideration
0: is there any uh just for the people listening because i know they would say like okay well if if there was like say i even for myself i did the photo shoot i would say i mean i don't know for sure but let's say i probably could have dropped at least another five people don't understand how like how much weight you have to actually lose to get on stage but like let's say i was gonna like go do a competition, actual competition after that. And we were trying to implement fasted cardio. So I'm a completely different subject. Why might that be beneficial? I know you're not saying like black and white, like it will be, but like, if it was like, are there mechanisms that you believe would trigger that? Just because I know people will
1: ask, you know, for sure. So we know acutely that you are oxidizing more fat during that actual session when you are fasted compared to fed. Um, and then people say, well, that's not a big deal because what matters over the 24 hour period is the net balance between output and input. Um, so physiologically, we know that, yeah, you're burning, you're oxidizing more fat during the fasted sessions. And then it kind of comes this layered component where it's like, all right, well, if that's acutely happening, we can also utilize some supplements that can enhance fat oxidation as well to a slightly higher degree, right? So let's just say you're implementing a little bit of caffeine pre-workout or pre-fasted cardio, that as well is also increasing fat oxidation during the fasted cardio. We don't have literature on fasted cardio versus fed cardio when you're also introducing supplements, which a lot of people just kind of do. You know, some people might drink a black cup of coffee, have a cup of green tea, take some sort of thermogenic before they do it, Um, so maybe there's just an advantage there, you know, and it can be super, super small, like super small, like maybe less than a percent, but if you're doing that for 16 weeks straight, you know, maybe that's a pound of fat loss for that one individual. And that can be having, you know, a really good competition physique where, or being, you know, slightly off and having another, another pound of fat to lose. So it's just these small advantages, you know, um, That again, we don't have the hard objective data there supporting it, but we also have nothing kind of refuting it or saying there's a negative to it. So if it fits your lifestyle,
0: you enjoy it, Mm -hmm. experiment with it, see see what you like. I often tell clients, uh, I call it stacking the 1%. And it's like, if I had told you, you could do it later in the day or you could do it in the morning, would it make any difference? Would it cause extra stress? No. Okay. Well, like, let's just go with the one that might be better. Okay. And Mm -hmm. then we go. Like, do I really need creatine? I mean, you don't need it, but if you add it, it might add 1%. Okay, let's take it. You know, you do these little things and it's like that 1%, 2%, 3%, 4%, 5%. We improve by just doing these little things that are really like, "Eh, it's really not that hard to do. Let's just do it. And it stacks over time. Um, So the last question on this, just because this is the other question people always ask. It's like, well, what is fasted then? Because there's, you know, if you look at time-restricted feeding, there's some people like, I want to say it was uh, Suchin Panda, I think was the guy that actually said it, but he was like, nothing like coffee, your liver oxidized, like you can't have anything. There's other people that are like, just keep a low calorie, like, don't get yeah. ridiculous. Um, there's some people that were like, I I'll do it, but I'm, I'm still having my aminos. I just can't, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> what are your thoughts as far as what you can and can't have before?
1: I mean, I think the definition should be calorically free nutrients for the most part. Right. Um, if you're consuming something like free floating amino acids, it's funny that so many people that again, this is where you have, so I'm still someone that utilizes fasted cardio. I'm not saying it's, it's much better by any means. It's just some, it's a tool. It's not even a tool in the toolbox, just my preference at this point. Mm -hmm. Right. But there are some people that kind of make this whole fasted cardio thing look bad because they're like, yeah, I need to take my aminos. And then they're kind of the same people that will talk about like growth hormone and fat oxidation, but then they're kind of like neglecting that like taking these aminos are actually increasing insulin and decreasing growth hormones. So it's like now I don't know necessarily why you're (laughs) doing fasted, like the advantage might kind of go out the window. Yeah. Um, but you're so scared to, you know, lose muscle that you're, you're taking that kind of supplement. So generally speaking, I, I think if you are fasted, it should be calorically free nutrients, like no calories coming in. Um, there is something called protein enhanced cardio, where some people like having protein before the, the cardio session, um, no carbohydrates and no fat, but still any good protein source with the uh, essential amino acids we're looking for is going to cause some sort of, actually a pretty large spike in insulin, um, and probably a decrease in growth hormone then. So, you know, it can go either way. That's kind of just like nuanced yeah. silliness.
0: One well, at that point too, like, I, I would hope you're not doing so much, like the duration of your cardio isn't so great that, you have to worry about losing muscle tissue. and You have to have, sure. you know what I mean? Like, you'll be fine. You know, go on a 30-minute yeah, walk. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because sure. I even had somebody that um they asked me, because I was sharing a lot with, like, my photo shoot prep diet and, like, everything I was doing. And they asked about it. I was like, yeah, I'm doing fasted cardio. And they were like, well, you, you post on your story, like, your coffee. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I have that. And there's, like, almond milk in it. And I was like, it's like, if I have two coffees, it ends up being a half a cup of almond milk, which is 30 calories. I mean, it's unsweetened yeah, and I was like, yeah, I mean, it probably technically, and even if that makes me not fast, I really don't care. Like, it's just, this sure. is what's best for my routine. And yeah, yeah, maybe that keeps me in a semi-fasted state. Maybe not. I don't care sure. enough to stop because I really like almond milk and my coffee, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it is what it is, you know? That's funny, man. Um, yeah. The nuance, right? So, um, all right, dope. I like that. Uh, reverse dieting was the next topic. And it's basically like, I thought of this one because I heard you talking about, um, you kind of intuitively did it. Like you didn't, I don't think you set out, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it didn't sound like you were like, I'm going to finish my show and stay super lean. And, like, you kind of were just, like, moving in back into life, getting busy, like, again, with work and stuff, and you didn't, like, put on a bunch of size purposefully. Um, You know, I guess, like, my I have two general questions. Um, Number one would be, like, for the more of the physique athlete like yourself, I almost feel like it becomes more – or easier to do or more acceptable to do what you did or to maybe not be so worried about being ex- extremely aggressive after the fact or whatever, the more experienced you get um, yeah. because you probably did things more intelligently on the way down. Um, and then the other side of it would be uh, just the, the idea of going slow on a reverse diet versus doing like a recovery diet and how context is so specific. Cause I think people grabbed onto the recovery diet and then it's like, Susie, who lost 20 pounds, but still isn't really that lean, thinks she needs to do a recovery diet. And now she just fucked yeah. up all the progress she made. And it's like, no, like you can go really slow. It'll, it'll require some discipline, but oh, 100%. you'll be fine, you know? So just kind of the context on those two things.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great point that you just made, actually, in regards to like the random gen pop Susie that just lost 20 pounds. There's something wrong. I'm going to get slightly off topic, but I, I swear I'll that's reel fine. it back in. There's something wrong with our space, like the health and fitness space, where we think what extreme competitive bodybuilders are doing is what we need to apply to ourselves. I mentioned this on a different, on a different podcast where it's like a huge issue that we have just in the resistance training world is like, you take a couch potato that hasn't lifted ever, or maybe in three years or six years, like maybe they, you know, played sports a while ago, whatever it may be. And they like at least back in the day, they'd pick up like a flex magazine or muscular development. Now they go online and they see like, you know, their flip doing a certain workout and they go from doing zero sets per week on this muscle group to doing like 12 to 16 working sets for one muscle group in one day. And then they're sore for five, seven days and they're wrecked. And it's like, why are you doing what that competitive bodybuilder is doing? If you're not even in the same stratosphere. Yeah. Right. So it's like, and the example I use is like, if you want to eventually run a marathon, but you haven't ran forever, you're not going to attempt to go run, you know, 13 miles or 25 miles like tomorrow. Like, you're literally going to jog one mile and then eventually do a mile and a half and two miles. But like, when it comes to resistance training, it's like, no, I'm doing what the pro bodybuilder is doing on day one. And yeah. it's just like, where is this? Like, you're missing you're missing the boat entirely by doing that.
0: Dude, I love, I love the, not to cut you off, but the, uh, and you can use this cause I know you'll love it. The su- like getting sunburned. It's like, Oh, you want to get a tan? Yeah. Do you go sit out in the burning sun while you're pasty for an hour or two and get just fucking lobster burnt or do Destroyed. you go yeah. out for 20 minutes and then come back in a couple of days? Like you go. slow. Yeah. Yeah. Get exactly. Exactly,
1: <laughs> man. Um, so yeah, I'll reel it back into the recovery diet, reverse diet. For gen pop people, I think reverse dieting is freaking extraordinary because um, I've had so much success with it where you take a gen pop person, you help them lose 10 or 15 pounds. They're still nowhere from being like athletically lean, but they're much healthier, right? And then you get them to maintain their body weight while adding in a hundred calories. Then it's eventually 200, and then it's eventually 300, and then it's eventually 500. So now they're maintaining their 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 new low body weight while eating 500 more calories per day, because you took a slow and methodical approach. Whereas if I just jumped them up by 500 calories per day, once they hit that new low, they would no longer be maintained that new low and they would have gained weight at a faster rate. So I think reverse dieting can be amazing, depending on the context. Um, when it comes to competitive athletes, it depends on so many factors. How many seasons have they competed for? How long was their diet? Do they plan on competing next season? Do they, you know, plan on competing in eight to 10 to 12 months from now? That's massively important. Um, you know, I'm working with some clients that are doing shows season to season back to back. And that reverse diet is so much more important for them compared to them regaining all of their, their body weight very quickly. And then, having to diet it all off again, six months later. So that that matters a lot. Um, And then just their general relationship with food. So I think it's really not the best decision. If somebody is having a really, really hard time psychologically with the reverse to try to stay on that course, I think it's smarter to say, Hey, let's welcome five to 10 pounds of weight gain, but let's cap it at a certain number. Like, let's not say we're going to regain 30 pounds. Let's, let's welcome 10 pounds of, of weight regain. And then let's slowly but surely add it from there. I think you just have to have a game plan beforehand and an expectation beforehand because once you cross that finish line, it's super easy to feel lost if you didn't have an idea of what approach you wanted to take beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, but for competitive athletes, It's way harder for them to take a really slow and methodical reverse because they are so hormonally screwed up at that point. They've been in deficit for so long. They're so lean that they're just going to feel way better if they actually regain uh, quite a bit amount of body fat. Yeah. So yeah, it's very, very
0: nuanced. Something that I would just like to get your thoughts on that I, I want to say I heard uh, Meno Henselman like throw out the idea like it was like a very side thing he threw out and I really like thought about it for a while and I ended up implementing it with somebody that um, it was kind of in that boat where they were struggling at the tail end of the diet but they they weren't shredded to the gills but they did very, they really wanted to stay lean like and they came to me as a gen pop who definitely got leaner than the average gen pop person ex-crossfitter now he's not doing crossfit and stuff um, so like the psychological side of dieting was a factor for sure However, he had a history of loving like cheat meals and shit, you know? So Mm -hmm. I knew if it was like, okay, I need to reverse you fast enough to reverse some of these like negative biofeedback symptoms. However, if I don't put some kind of parameter around it, the likelihood of you putting highly uh, palatable foods in there and then going way over what we allotted to is very likely. And that's where I think people go into a tailspin. So what I actually did with him was I did increase him more aggressively, but I actually ended up restricting some of his food selections, which some people would actually mm. be kind of um, turned off by. But my thing with him was I was like, "Hey, this is temporary." Shame but. on you. Yeah, exactly. Like, shame on you, Cody. Clean foods. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I was like, "Look, this isn't. This is temporary, man. But I want you to really just focus on these foods for the next like couple of weeks. Like, we're gonna increase your intake. Yeah. Let the intake actually dictate how you feel before we decide to go have a cheat meal or anything like that." Um, it was game changer. Like he didn't have those crazy all that stuff. Cause he just needed more food in his body. And it kind of started solving itself. Right. Versus yeah. me saying, Hey, all right, cool. We're going to add 500 calories. And then he was like, dope. I can fit some Ben and Jerry's in. And then it turns into who knows what afterwards. hundred percent.
1: Yeah, man. Um, something I'm, I'm upset that I didn't do last contest prep was I got blood worked on at certain, certain points. And then there came a point where I just, kind of tired and just didn't want to deal with it anymore but i wish i did because i wish i had the objective data now um but one thing i wanted to point out was going into my first show i actually felt way worse than going into my second and third show um even though i got leaner and leaner as the season went on so i think there's this misconception between poor metabolic health or hormonal profiles and and body fat percent levels just like off the bat so some people think like, Oh, if you're below 8%, like you're hormonally unhealthy. And I, I do not think that's true by any means. Cause there's plenty of like basketball players, soccer players that are pretty freaking shredded, like really low body fat percents, super healthy hormonal profile. So the reason I mentioned that is because going into my first show, I was kind of crash dieting. Cause I was like six, seven weeks out, but I really looked like I was 10 weeks out from a conditioning standpoint. So I kind of went pedals to the metal for a good six weeks. And I f- it didn't feel great going into my first show and I wasn't even shredded, shredded yet. Um, but I had like really bad diet face. Like my, my face was totally sunk in. And if I were to get blood work done, I would hypothesize that my test was really, really low. Um, libido was shot, so on and so forth. I bet my, my thyroid function was a bit off. And again, I don't have the data. So this is just based on how I felt. After my first show, I significantly increased my calories on training days by three to 500 immediately. Um, but I kept my non-training days, super aggressive deficit days. So my weekly net was still a deficit and I just got better and better. And I kind of like, I regained any of the, the, the lean body mass that I lost when I pushed things because I was dexing, but I wasn't getting the blood work done anyway. The point I'm trying to make is I think hormonal health has a lot to do with acute energy availability and not necessarily your body fat level. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I had more food coming in, I just felt so freaking good. And that also helped my relationship with food. Whereas like, because I brought food up going into show two and show three, I didn't have any desire to like eat a full pipe in bed and Jerry's or like go to this place and, and binge on this food. Um, I just did, I was eating like 2,700 calories a day towards the tail end. I was like, dude, I feel great on my training days, at least. And then on my non-training days, I was stupid aggressive. I was not stupid aggressive, but, um, I don't like using the term stupid, but I was very aggressive where I was just basically doing, um, pretty high fat, only vegetable, like fibrous vegetables and protein. Like I just cut my carbs out. Um, so I, again, had that net deficit but yeah, body comp improved training performance was getting better. And I just, I felt good, dude. Like I just didn't have any desire to eat a bunch of shit, you know? And then I was, yeah, I was maintaining like five to six pounds over stage weight for a long time. Um, just naturally just by intuitively eating and kind of like what you said, like you said, you're kind of on a meal plan right now, like 90% of the time, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say like I'm on a meal plan, but first thing in the morning, I always have a smoothie. It's always like, fruits, oats, protein, greens, walnuts, whatever, like that's meal one all the time, pre workout and post workout are just like super similar. And then meal four, which is dinner, always kind of changes, but it's never like a ridiculously high amount of calories. So I kind of just stayed on the same eating routine. um, And I just felt fine. So I'm like, why am I going to gain an additional 10 pounds when I feel great where I'm at now, like that doesn't make sense. And I wasn't training hard. I was kind of like, I don't want to say deloading, but I was in like this maintenance phase from a volume perspective. I was like, I'm not going to just eat more food to eat more food. Like I just don't even want to. So, but I think there's a huge difference between your 10th year doing something versus your first year doing something.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually one of the things I wanted to to follow this up with was just like body fat percentages in hormone levels. Because I think in one case, I'm like, there's probably certain situations where people do one show, they get shredded and they think they need to, they, either they think they need a recovery diet or they do feel like shit for sure, but they yeah. don't have another show. So the accountability to stay disciplined isn't there. So they just bump up fast. They immediately feel better and they go, see, I needed body fat levels in order to feel better. And it's like, we don't know if it was that or if it was the calories. And I can't say it was the calories, not the body fat, but we don't know, right? And yep. when you have a, another show coming, you're like, okay, I need to strategically add some calories, but I can't go crazy because I have another show coming. And you were able 100%. to test that hypothesis, right? And I think um, mm-hmm. even with the meal plan stuff, same thing. Like, it just fits my schedule. If it's my routine, it's easy. They digest well. Like, yeah. I function better if, if I just know my meals are on point. And then, like, for me, if I, as long as I know my macro totals, like, when I go travel or, like, next weekend we're out of town for Father's Day weekend, my wife wants to do something on Saturday nights for date night, I'll play the flexible dieting game. You know, I know how to do it, but like during the week I'm a machine. I just want to have things dialed in and it just fits yeah. my life better. Um, and so, and, and I agree. I think that there's uh it, it would almost make fat loss pointless unless you're, unless you're competing. Seriously. It would, it would almost make like getting really lean pointless if you just can't stay that way. Like, yeah, you know, if you have to, to get bigger afterwards. Now, obviously, like you said, if you have other shows, you have like, you finish, like if I finish this shoot and I'm like, all right, I got another shoot next year. I want to put on more size. Of course, I got to hurry up and get in surplus. So I spend more time gaining, but, um, I think there's just so many caveats, you know? Uh, yeah,
1: there's, I don't want to dive too deep into a rabbit hole, but speaking of the evidence-based space, there's so many people that claim that you're going to gain more muscle at higher body fat percentages with no evidence supporting that. Yeah. Especially once the P ratio stuff started coming out and yeah. Yeah. Um, dude, there's so many issues with that stuff. I'm not, I'm not even going to go into it, but, (laughs) um, this is the thing. Like we understand that we do have data supporting. If you eat in a two to 300 calorie surplus, you're going to make the same amount of lean body mass gains compared to a a 500 calorie surplus or a thousand calorie surplus. Right. So if we know that, and if the evidence-based people are like highlighting those studies, why are those same people also kind of supporting you to gain 15 pounds post-show immediately instead of six to eight pounds post-show? Like it should be extremely individualized based on how you feel psychologically, mentally, emotionally, and physically. It's a combination of all of that. Um, but again, we, we don't have data to support that one is better than the other. It's just, you need to find what works for that person. And then when it comes to that rate of gain, again, it's like those same people that are, that are telling you to gain a lot of body weight post diet, they kind of also say, you're not going to be gaining any lean body mass initially anyway. Like it's not, you're not in a good hormonal space to build muscle. So just get back to, to, being hormonally healthy, but we still really don't have enough data to understand how long does it take to come back to good hormonal health, you know? Um, So like if I were, if you and I right now, went in a thousand calorie deficit starting today and we got blood work done this morning and we get blood work done 10 days from now, our testosterone levels are already gonna take a, a, a trend in the negative direction just after 10 days of being in a deficit. So there's this acute energy availability thing that's super important. And it's not just body fat percentages, you know? Yeah. So there's more to learn. There's more to explore. we don't have all the answers yet. Then it is frustrating when sometimes people who kind of get that stamp of approval, right? Like this person's evidence-based, I'm going to trust everything this person says. And I used to be there when I was younger, like anything that certain people said, like, you know, huge shout out to like Lane Norton, um, dr eric helms like all these people like anything that they would say like i always just kind of believed it automatically right automatic um so i think it's important for everybody to i don't want to say take everything from a grain of salt because their ability to um digest and, and critique the, the literature is incredible right yeah. so you should absolutely respect things that true experts are saying but there's this uh there's this this trend that's happening where it's like some of the people in the evidence-based space are making claims that aren't backed by science but people assume it's backed by science because they're saying it it's yeah. really just their opinion yeah you know it's their educated opinion there's they can give you logic and and reasoning and theory behind why they have that opinion but there's
0: actually no literature on it yet so it's like yeah
1: Yeah, it's
0: just interesting, man. I have a a semi-abrasive opinion on some of that that I'm going to get to in a sec. But before we move off the body fat percentage thing, I just want to add this because I think it would be helpful for the listeners and I'd be curious. Um, Because, you know, in general, uh, I've seen this, like, this is like just me hypothesizing. And theoretically speaking, I've seen this. Um, And this is also why, like, we need more research on certain things. Uh, What I'm about to say just shows we need more research on females. But also like even what you just said with the acute energy deficit causing these hormonal changes, this is why I think we need. And again, I don't want to be one of those people that says like, well, you should change the study dynamics to be like this. Sure. But like diet break literature, like I take it all in. I'm like, Oh, this is great. But I still don't 100% believe no matter what, black and white, it's only psychological. I do think there's more to it. And I think yeah. it depends on the individual because I have some individuals that have way higher stress, way more responsibilities, way longer history of dieting, hormonal issues that are not in those studies. So there's certain things that I see happen that I'm like, okay, I can't back it up with a cited resource, but if it works and they're happy, I'm gonna keep doing it. But the question is more like, uh, like you said, you know, you used 8% example. Let's use that as like a male example of getting like below 8%, your hormones are screwed. Um, Do you think that this, the same thought process applies to women but maybe not as much. And and what I mean by that is I generally see uh, that it's easier to keep guys healthier at a leaner level. Like if we diet down Mm. a female, I feel like their hormones take a bigger hit. They're more likely to lose their period. They're more likely to have um, a tougher time reverse dieting compared to a dude staying lean. Um, Do you think that's just purely coincidence that I've noticed that? Or do you think there's anything there?
1: Um, There might be something there. I think there also might be something to the females you're actually working with. Um, like what, what is that demographic looking like? And then what percentage of those people kind of fall on a similar category of response? Right. Um, because I've worked, I agree to an extent because I've worked with some females that I've been able to get basically contest lean without digging super, super deep And some of them have actually not lost their cycle, which is like blows my mind because I'm almost just expecting them to because they're so freaking lean. Um, Whereas others, it's like they lose their cycle relatively early on in the deficit. They're still not even stage lean. It takes forever for them to get it back. Um, So it's just so much, so many different individual responses that it's really hard to say. But um, I, I think a part of that might just be due to the the females that you've worked with over the years Mm -hmm. and like what kind of demographic do they kind of fall in?
0: Yeah. There's a, I I took a quote from Eric Helms one time and he said uh, in research, we're working with averages, not individuals. And it was a really good way of thinking of all this stuff. Cause like you said, like there it's so, so different. Like those two examples you gave are literally polar opposites, you know? Um, Yeah. yeah. But so the thing that I was going to say that's semi abrasive and I don't mean it as like a shot at any, one person or anything like that. And it kind of ties into the whole like effort com- conversation, but you know, you were saying it, it's, it's weird that some of these people um it's almost like some of the evidence based community wants you to back off, wants you to take it easy, wants you to go like, not go hard. Yeah. They don't want you to experiment. And they're looking for a reason to say you don't have like the whole, like, Oh, you can leave four reps in the tank. Like it just, I can't get, I can't get around to it. And it's like, it's, it's almost as if, and I don't. Again, I don't mean this isn't. This isn't a blanket saying like every researcher is like this. Because obviously, I'm talking to you right now. You're a researcher, but yeah. I think there's a lot that write these things in either A. They don't have experience working with people, so they don't realize how some people take it and apply it, or B. They can't dig themselves. Like they're not getting on stage. They're not powerlifting. They're not grinding in the gym. They're not pushing the intensity. So they're looking for reasons to prove that you don't need to do those hard difficult things that require grit and they use science to try to back up the reason to take it easy um and and i think that like and this is not me being like you know go hard brother like yeah go to failure ever set but like i i believe that like you know a lot of like everybody i know who has a great physique has like had success in business has um a lot of fulfillment in life anything has like really push themselves in an area of their life really hard. You know, they've done the work and they've gone to the limit and they pull back and recover. And then they push back to that limit on purpose. They don't like purposely stay six feet away from the limit at all times. Like they go to it. So I don't know. Like that's my thought. And I think that's where the effort thing comes into play of like research shows you don't need to go to failure. Training failure is not better. Um, Like even the volume stuff, it's like you need these high amounts of volume. Yeah. If you're leaving four or five reps in the tank, you do, I'm sure. But like, I don't know. Just general. Yeah, RAM man, there.
1: there. Oh, dude, there's so much to dive into there. Um, I'll start off by saying training is a failure is a skill and you can improve that skill over time, the more frequently you do it. Mm-hmm. So your definition of failure kind of changes because your level of intensity, your ability to push through psychological barriers change over time. Um, so we already understand that people do a relatively poor job of actually predicting RIR, RPE, um, especially beginners or low level intermediates. Like we already know that. So all of this is so context specific. The way I kind of, I I haven't, I, I mentioned this on a, on a recent podcast, but I haven't like formally constructed my thoughts in like an article form or like put this out in a clean way yet. But The way I kind of view like this whole volume and intensity thing, first of all, we know that volume, intensity, and frequency are all interrelated. So you can't turn one of those dials without adjusting the other two. Like it's just organization of your training work, right? But the way I kind of look at this, this volume component to training and intensity, I think when you're a true beginner, you can get away with doing extremely low volume at moderate to low intensities and you're going to respond because it's such a novel response anyway. So yeah, if you're a beginner, you might as well not train close to failure, reduce your risk of injury and you're still going to make great progress. So I feel like if you're a beginner, you start with like, honestly, like low volume and low intensity or moderate intensity, whatever, like you don't have the skill to train to failure yet anyway. And then as you stick in this game longer and longer, you're probably going to increase your training volume for multiple reasons. So you can kind of continue to progress um, because you start adding more exercise selection and variation because you're enjoying training more. So rather than just doing a bench press for chest, you wanna do a little bit of incline, you wanna do a fly variation, you start adding in more exercises because you're enjoying this whole resistance training component of your life more and more. So you kind of need to do a bit more to continue to respond well And you also wanna just get more specific because you're trying to maximize hypertrophy in every region of the muscle, so on and so forth. So you kind of automatically start doing more volume because you're performing more exercises. So your volume is increasing. Your intensity kind of automatically increases as well because you are developing a little bit of grit and you want to get stronger at faster rates. So you're pushing yourself harder, right? Once you get to, so I think like intermediates, Can train with a good amount of volume, like higher levels of volume, because they actually need to practice the skill of lifting Mm. more to get good at it. So I feel like, yeah, it makes sense to kind of linear to increase your volume in a linear fashion, when you're going from like beginner to intermediate. And then I think, once you start going from like intermediate to advance, you're already like, once you start getting really strong, and you're Mo- your proficiency at, of certain movement patterns and exercises is so good. You can probably start decreasing your volume or your total number of working sets, because now the quality of your work is so good. So it's like your ROI is higher, like your compound interest is higher. So you could do a little bit less, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So the the literature is all over the place um, to an extent. I, this meta-analytic data that, suggest 10, 10 to 20 sets per week is a really good ballpark for most people, for most muscle groups, but you still need to individualize that context, right? So a true, true beginner can get great results for just five sets per week. Um, then they slowly increase that over time, but I don't think a more advanced person needs to do more total sets, more total volume. I think they're already so strong and their skill is so high at those movements that, their, their bang for their buck is higher on, on every set where they can actually get away with doing less and they kind of need to do a little bit less because now they're carrying more systemic fatigue because they are so strong and every set is so fatiguing. So that's just like a general rant on, you know, volume and intensity, so to speak.
0: Well, and if you, if you look at a lot of the people that promote lower volumes, they are advanced individuals who they can recruit motor units and muscle fibers as a skill very well. Right. I even think of like uh Joe Bennett, hypertrophy coach, like, he's very into, you know, um, resistance curves and creating maximal tension and peak tension and torque and all these things. And his training is pretty low volume, but his whole thing is being able to maximize the tension in the muscle because he has a skill that he has developed over time to be able to maximize that. So he can get away with less. I'm sure if he did more volume, he'd probably just burn out. It's too much, you know, uh, or he'd get injured. So, um, yeah. and I, so I agree hundred percent. I think that it's almost like It is that U shaped bell curve where it's like, you got to start low. And then when you get like intermediate, you kind of get to that 20 area, you might be gaining really well, but then as you get better at lifting, you probably got to come back down closer to 10, you know, per week because for sure you're getting better at it.
1: I agree. I agree. And, um, that kind of goes back to what I said before. Like, it's stupid if you're a beginner and then you're doing the muscular development or flex magazine workout of 12 to 16 sets for one muscle group in one day. And like you know you could respond if you just did four. Yeah. You know, like why are you doing quadruple the amount of work right off the bat? Like slowly build it up over time. And then once you get really strong, you can get away with doing less because you're lifting very heavy loads. There's a high level of mechanical tension on the muscle, you're creating a good amount of muscular damage um because of your your strength levels, essentially. So yeah, I agree, man. I've had the pleasure to train with Joe a few times and he literally does two working sets for each exercise for the most part. He usually those like a top set and a back off. It's usually two working sets, super high quality, great stimulus, um, pushes to like true concentric failure, even does some like forced reps some partials, you know, like once you can no longer move the range through full, like full range of motion, maybe you're just cranking out a couple of partials at the end of the set. Um, and you're going to contractile failure and then you're done. Yeah. So it's like you really earn it. Um, the quality really high. The intensity is really high and um, the volume just doesn't need to be that high because you already turned the dial all the way on, on that intensity level.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, we're running out of time. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to keep you any longer, man, but like it, the last thing I'll say on that topic in, I believe I'm correct in saying this, but Even things like that, right? Speaking of evidence-based and trying to follow that to to the T is, you know, like partials. Oh, those aren't as good as full range. Or like, uh, you know, going to concentric failure is probably not as good. Drop sets probably not good. Extended sets probably not as good because lowers volume. But the problem I see is that a lot of times, most of this research isn't in highly highly advanced individuals because how are you going to get a how are you going to get Joe Bennett to participate in a study and be like, hey, I don't want you to follow your program for the next twelve weeks so we can test this? He's like, no, I'm good. Like, hundred percent. I love my
1: training. (laughs) And dude a lot of the training the exercise science isn't the most basic basic um equipment kind of constraints right like we literally have barbells and dumbbells and maybe a cable column Like, we don't have a fancy prime piece of equipment we don't have a nautilus pull down like you know the the actual studies being done if you look at the movement patterns it kind of depends on the study right like maybe if you're doing a barbell bent over row doing four sets of that is way different than doing a chest supported row. Like the stimulus to fatigue ratio is way different on that exercise. Yeah. So it's like, you have to be really careful with what you're like. You're literally comparing apples to oranges, but you think it's okay because there's a study behind it. It's mm-hmm. like, no, it doesn't, doesn't actually make sense. Yeah. So yeah. Um, this was a great conversation, man. It was. I appreciate, appreciate you having me on.
0: I think this conversation needs to be had more, man. It's like I'm actually like literally seeking out uh, people who I think are experts on both ends of the spectrum to come on the show and talk about this because it's something um, I'm passionate about just from being in the strength world for so long, you know, and being very passionate about coaching as well as science. And I think that, um, you know, as much as I would love to have as much of an influence on these answers or these topics as somebody like you, I just don't because I don't have the credentials. I don't do the research. So yeah. it's nice to bring on people like yourself, Jackson. I'm, I'm seeking out more people who are in the same boat of like, they, they got their PhD, they they've done the work, they've done the research, but they also yeah. have a slightly different opinion. You know, not that one is yeah. better than the other, but that both are needed. And um, I want to be able to bring people on that have that credibility so we can teach people like there is no black and white to this stuff. It's, it's all big. It depends.
1: For sure. For sure. Um, one thing I wanted to mention super quick, you, you were talking about like drop sets and parcels. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And stuff like that. We don't have a lot of research on that just in general. But one thing I will say is like every once in a while, you know, life gets busy for me and maybe I only have 45 minutes to train instead of like the 90 minutes that I really kind of need. Um, and on those days I'm doing a bunch of, uh, intensity techniques Um, so rather than doing, you know, two or three sets, I might do one set, but make it an extended set and and do a drop set or implement some sort of advanced technique. So I can kind of get that higher stimulus that does have a higher, that also kind of leads to higher fatigue, but because I'm kind of just doing one set, like they're just tools in the toolbox and like you can utilize it a certain way. Right. Or if it's the final exercise for that muscle group within that session, there's nothing wrong with adding an intensity technique, right? So let's say you have a push day, you already did your shoulder press, you did your chest press, and now you're on lateral raises. Like, what do you think is going to happen if you do a, your lateral raises to actual concentric failure and then throw in a drop set or parcels or both at the end of it? Like, you think you're going to die? You're going to be under recovered because you're one isolation movement. Like you took right. that to failure. Like you think yeah. you're, you're not going to be ready for push, you know, four days from now. Like you're, it's just ridiculous. Right. So, um, people need to experiment. Don't be afraid to try things and then kind of figure it out, um, for themselves, see what they enjoy, what they like, what they respond well to and kind of take it from there. Yeah.
0: It's a marathon, yeah. man, not a sprint. You gotta have fun yeah. with this stuff and take the long road. So, um, dude, Again, thank you for spending time with me. This has been a blast. I love these conversations so much. Um, Tell everybody where they can find you, your content. I know you got a website. I think you have, um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you have some kind of like course or mentorship or or product that you're putting out on School of Gains. So like anything that you have for us, drop it on here so I can link it in the description.
1: Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, you guys can check out most of my content at schoolofgains.com. Gains is spelled with a Z. And then uh, on Instagram, I haven't been super active on there, but it's just my full name. It's just Christopher.barricat. Um, yeah, on school gains earlier this year, we had our first like online course release, um, where it was a live cohort and we're going to have a second cohort starting pretty soon. I don't have an official start date on that, but for those of you interested, definitely kind of keep your, your eyes and ears tuned, um, real quick. It's a four week course. The first week is on muscle physiology. The second week is on kinesiology. The third week is on volume intensity and frequency. And then the fourth week is on practical programming. So it's a, it's a training based course. Um, And yeah, we'll have that second live cohort starting relatively soon. So keep your eyes open for that.
0: Oh yeah. I love it, man. I'll link all that. I appreciate it. Um, In the description, I can't recommend it enough guys. I've worked with Chris personally. I've been his friend for years now. So um, go check out all of his content. It'll be below. And uh, I'm sure you'll, you'll hear him on the podcast again. Thank you, bro. Appreciate it.